Hi everyone, and welcome to the Ingle Nook. Thanks for joining me around the fire for some of history's greatest stories. As always, I'm your host, Logan East. On today's episode, we turn back the pages to the mythical days of yore, to the misty fjords of Norway, and to the stony shores of the British Isles. For the past decade or so, Vikings have enjoyed a sort of renaissance in the public imagination. They have been the subjects of movies, shows, books, and video games in great supply. They come to our imaginations astride dragon-proud longships and, in older depictions, sporting horned helmets and blonde braids. The part I find most interesting about the Vikings, however, is not the violence, raiding, or even their mythology. What mystifies me about the Vikings is how little we really know about them as individuals. What they thought, said, sang, talked about, or imagined themselves as doing in the world. Their deeds, who did them, and the precise details of Viking lives are stubbornly elusive and are often known only by a few words in a saga or medieval chronicle. As a boy, this fact always bothered me. I wanted precision, detail, and certainty in my history, which is why I gravitated toward the 19th century. My one exception to this rule, however, was my interest in the Anglo-Saxons and their defeat by the Normans. As I have matured, though, I have come to find a new appreciation for the uncertainty, for the crossroads of myth and fact. Today's episode is meant to explore that relationship. By the end of our story, I think we will walk away with a greater understanding of the Vikings and how they thought, as well as how their victims thought about them. As we shall see, the Vikings left not only a legacy for themselves, but also shaped how cultures they interacted with thought of their own societies. If nothing else, it is bound to be a good story. While I have read and heard many accounts of the Vikings and of events in Anglo-Saxon England over the years, I have been helped out in this account specifically by three sources that I recommend to anyone interested in these topics. John Haywood's Northmen provides an excellent survey of the Viking world and their many activities around the Northern Hemisphere. Haywood also provides a fantastic bibliography for further reading. Mark Morris's The Anglo-Saxons is a very recent account of the Anglo-Saxon world that looks at the developments of the Saxons and their culture through several key figures and is an engaging read. Lastly, Winston Churchill's first volume in his History of the English-Speaking People is a classic that provides an excellent overview of the whole situation that stands the test of time. The citations for these books, as well as the names of some key primary sources that I consulted in writing this account, will be available to patrons over at patreon.com forward slash Inglenook. You can become a nookie there for just $1 a month to support the show. Patronage will provide you with a complete set of show notes, including the citations just mentioned. In the future, I hope to provide even more exclusive content, but more on this in the future. So, if you will, come with me across the waves to a time on the edge of memory where legends walked among men. In the year 789, on the small island of Portland, just off the southern coast of modern-day England, then the kingdom of the West Saxons, all was peaceful. Though Wessex had had no shortage of conflict with its inland neighbors, the Mercians, the Welsh, and so on, little Portland had been far removed from these conflicts and had enjoyed the bustling trade along the English Channel. 
One imagines that the Portlanders had been used to trade from all sorts of people, the Franks, the Frisians, and perhaps even some traders from the Mediterranean. As such, it would have been none too concerning to see three sailing vessels appear off the coast. But these vessels were not like the broad, stout cargo boats that they were used to seeing. These ships were long, narrow, and had sharply raised prows, both fore and aft. Thanks to their shallow draft, these ships likely slid up neatly on the shore. The men who would have leapt out of these ships would not have looked especially different from the local Portlanders. These were Norsemen, men from what is now called Scandinavia, and these particular Norsemen were from Norway. The Norse, like the West Saxons, were Germanic peoples, and these Saxons would have seen Norsemen before in the form of merchants and tradesmen. Even some of their legends and stories told of ancestors back in the northern lands, such as Beowulf. But these Norsemen, literally Northmen, were armed and did not seem to possess any cargo for trade. Nevertheless, the local reeve, the king's port official, approached the men to collect the king's taxes, levied on all arriving vessels. All we really know about this reeve is that his name was Beduherd, and that he was about to have a very bad day. One imagines that he was flanked by a few assistants, perhaps armed men, while a crowd of townspeople gathered at a distance. The Norsemen, who appeared to be lost, likely argued with the reeve for a few minutes. Their languages, Old English and Old Norse, would have been different but vaguely intelligible to one another. Realizing that the reeve demanded taxation and might have possessed a coin purse on his hip, the Norsemen leapt at their would-be assessor and slew him. Grabbing what they could, the bandits leapt back into their ships, which rode backward as well as they had going forward, and they were out to sea before anyone could react to what had happened. As traumatic and distressing as such an event was, it appeared to be an isolated incident, and politics and trade in the British Isles went on largely as before. Some coastal preparations were made across the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, but there is no written record of other attacks. Four years later, in 793, however, the easy peace of the coastline would be shattered for generations. The island of Lindisfarne is a small, green piece of land floating in the North Sea one mile off the northeastern English coast, near the border with Scotland today. It is, it is accessible sorry, by foot twice a day at low tide, much like other coastal islands such as St. Michael's Mount in Cornwall and Mont Saint-Michel in Normandy. Though it is a remote locale today, it was well situated in the old Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Northumbria. Only a few miles from the old stronghold of Bamburgh, the island was an ideal base for Christian missionaries seeking to spread the gospel to the local Angles. Irish monks had established a monastery on the island about a century and a half earlier that, in addition to Christianizing the people of Northumbria, had succeeded in becoming one of the wealthiest and most revered religious communities in all the British Isles rivaled only by the Scots-Irish Monastery of Iona and the Christian Cathedral in Canterbury. It had produced a slew of saints, the most famous being St. Cuthbert, and had accumulated vast wealth in the form of religious art, adornments, and vestments. The island, staffed only by plump monks and their hired assistants, was devoid of military defenses. Belief was so strong in the power of the saints and God's favor that the island was thought to be invincible. And, as noted by Charlemagne's Northumbrian advisor, Alcuin of York, no heinous violence had visited the Anglo-Saxons from the sea for three centuries, since they themselves had displaced the native Celtic Britons. 
On June 8th, however, sails appeared on the horizon. With no access to the mainland, the monastery was isolated and helpless. While the monks might have had time to stow away a few prized possessions, and perhaps a few found places to hide, the Norsemen were soon upon them, and, were the, and they were merciless. Many were slain, and much was plundered. Being an all-male community, the locals were probably spared rape, a horror common in other similar raids. Despite this mercy, many of the monks were hauled away with the booty to be sold as slaves. Almost as quickly as they had appeared, the Norsemen were out to sea again before any help could arrive. The later sources would remark that bad omens had appeared in the sky leading up to the raid, the attack effectively came out of the blue and shocked the consciences and hearts of all the British Isles. Not only had the saints not defended Lindisfarne, perhaps indicating God's disfavor, but the attackers appeared at random and could not be pursued. There was no apparent reason for the attack other than plunder, and there was no reason it could not happen again elsewhere, or even at Lindisfarne again. How could a defense be made on such short notice? Would more Norsemen come in the future? These were some of the questions that Angles, Saxons, Scots, Welsh, and the Irish must have been asking themselves. They did not have to wait long for an answer. Just the next year, 794, a raiding party of Norsemen attacked the monastery at Jarrow in Northumbria. Not far from Lindisfarne, Jarrow had been home to the Venerable Bede, one of the first English historians and church writers, 70 years before. While they did initially succeed in plundering the monastery, the locals were better prepared and launched a counterattack that slew the leader of the raiders. The surviving Norsemen scrambled into their boats and headed out to sea, only to be thrown back onto the shore by a storm. The locals vented their wrath and left no survivors. Fortunate as this outcome was for the Angles, the Norsemen began launching similar raids in Scotland and Ireland, often targeting isolated monasteries, such as Iona, that made for easy, juicy pickings. Not long after, in 799, the Franks in continental Europe would witness similar intensifying attacks. For more than two centuries, the peoples of Western Europe, and indeed people much further afield, would live in fear of random raids from these mysterious Northmen. Today, of course, we know these raiders as Vikings, and the attack on Lindisfarne is commonly identified as the beginning of the Viking Age. The question, then, that comes to us presently is simple. Who were these Vikings, and what was it they were doing? The term Viking comes from Old Norse and was then understood as a verb, eviking, instead of a noun. The phrase roughly meant to go a-plundering, or to be a sort of pirate. These Vikings hailed from the region now known as Scandinavia, which is comprised of the subregions Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. Scandinavia, sometimes simply referred to as the North by contemporary Europeans, or Thule by ancient cartographers, is a land of large peninsulas that jut out into the North Sea and encapsulate a large inland sea known as the Baltic. Southern Scandinavia consists of Denmark, itself made up of a flat peninsula of land, Jutland, and an archipelago of islands that perforate the entrance to the Baltic Sea. 
north, across the Skagerrak and Kattegat, the two major straits that lead from the North Sea into the Baltic, are Norway and Sweden. Norway stretches most of the western coastline of Scandinavia along the North Sea. The interior of Norway is dominated by the Scandies, or Scandinavian mountains, while the coast slopes down into a series of fjords, mountain-sided valleys filled with water that make ideal spots for coastal villages. They're also very beautiful. The many islands, sounds, and fjords along Norway's coast offer protection from North Sea storms, permitting a so-called North Way for sea travel along the coast, giving the land its name. Sweden, to the east and south of the Scandies, slopes from the mountains down into a wide, flat plain that spans the northern reaches of the Baltic Sea. Far to the north of Norway and Sweden, in the mountain vales of the northern Scandies, is Sápmi, the land of the Sami people. While they do not enter our story today, it is worth noting that their land is one most commonly associated with reindeer. Directly west of central Sweden, across the Bay of Bothnia, is Finland. While Finland is sometimes considered a part of Scandinavia, the Finns, like the Sami, are culturally distinct from the people of Norway, Sweden, and Denmark, and as such do not feature in this story. The obvious, dominating fact of Scandinavia is that it lies far to the north. Much of it is beyond the Arctic Circle, though humid Atlantic currents keep it warmer than it might otherwise be. This basic fact means that it is a cold place and, in many parts of Norway and Sweden, the land is covered in dense evergreen forests, perfect for shipbuilding. Its remote location and difficult climate, however, meant that for most of human prehistory and much of early recorded history, it lay on the outskirts of wealth and trade. Our knowledge of what happened in Scandinavia before the end of the 10th century AD comes overwhelmingly from archaeological evidence and, Toward the end of the period, written sources from people the Scandinavians interacted with, such as the Anglo-Saxons and Franks. From the earliest prehistoric evidence, the inhabitants of Scandinavia were Germanic peoples. The name comes from the Roman term for the land beyond the River Rhine, north of the Alps encapsulating much of Central Europe, Germania. These Germanic peoples shared a common root language, similar religious practices, and artistic themes. The Romans and Greeks, from whom come all the earliest written records, regarded them all as barbarians. Human prehistory is often divided into three parts, the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, and the Iron Age. These eras are defined by archaeologists according to the materials commonly used by a given culture in their daily tools and instruments. These eras occurred at different times in different places, and are generally regarded as ending when that written historical record takes shape. In the Near East and Mediterranean, for instance, the Iron Age ended around about 600 or 500 BC. The Nordic Bronze Age, on the other hand, ends around the same time, and the Nordic Iron Age only concluded during the late Dark Ages, in roughly the year 1000 or 900. When most of Western and Southern Europe had forms of written history for centuries, if not millennia. Early settlers likely migrated into Scandinavia as the ice sheets of the Ice Age gradually receded, relying initially on stone tools during the Neolithic period until the adoption of bronze tools. Bronze, however, is an alloy of copper and tin, which was not accessible in Scandinavia at the time. This situation meant that bronze was obtained in Scandinavia through trade with people to the south. 
What these northern peoples did have access to, however, was amber, fossilized tree resin renowned for its beauty, durability, and static electric qualities. The Greeks called it electrum, giving us the word electricity. Amber was traded south, eventually finding its way to places like Rome and Greece. While, while North Germanic merchants would return with bronze ingots that could be turned into all manner of things, weapons, tools, jewelry, and the like. Though amber could be easily found by almost anyone in Scandinavia, access to trade routes was limited, and a social elite of those with control of this amber-bronze trade emerged at this time. Relics of this period are found in burial and sacrificial hordes. Many of these sites take the shape of large, stone outlines of ships that resemble Viking longships. These Bronze Age peoples also drew petroglyphs on rocks resembling men paddling war canoes. The glyphs were made in such a way that, when it rained, water would rush past them, creating the appearance of sailing on water. Bronze ceremonial helmets from this time are what led to the mistaken 19th century belief that Vikings wore horned helmets. It is during this Nordic Bronze Age, stretching from the 1st centuries BC to the 1st centuries AD, that we find the first evidence of seaworthy vessels. These North Germanic peoples, who I will now simply call the Norse, seem to have been late adopters of the sail. Their early boats were large war canoes made in the clinker style, with timbers lapped over each other, and with raised prows, an obvious precursor to the ships seen during the Viking Age. These Bronze Age craft appear to have been paddled and used mostly for simple raiding, within Scandinavia itself, not across the open oceans. The advent of iron tools, however, disrupted this Bronze Age power structure. Low-grade iron could be found easily in bogs and swamps that were all over Scandinavia. The easy access to iron destroyed old hierarchies and created more egalitarian, though more chaotic, society where status and power no longer relied on who had access to the bronze trade. At the same time, events to the south added to the chaos and created new opportunities. This period, stretching roughly from the 4th century to the 7th century, is commonly known as the European Migration Period. In Roman history, it is commonly referred to as the Barbarian Invasion. Germanic and Slavic peoples in Central and Eastern Europe were being displaced and attacked by newcomers from the East, the most famous of which were the Huns led by Attila. Germanic tribes like the Goths and Burgundians were being terrorized by Hunnic horsemen and were pressing into the frontiers of the Roman Empire seeking new, safer lands. It was around this time that Germanic tribes like the Angles, Saxons, and Jutes began their migration to the British Isles, forcing the native Celtic peoples westward. While these migrations resulted in rampant bloodshed and the eventual collapse of the Western Roman Empire in the middle of 400s, it meant opportunity for the Norse. The Huns were little threat in the far north, but the Norse now had an abundant population thanks to continued warming and improved farming, as well as new iron weapons. They hired themselves out as mercenaries or acted as opportunistic raiders, seeking plunder from other displaced tribes. Contrary to popular imagination, most of them fought with spears and shields, not axes or swords, which would have been much more expensive. In this new environment, prestige and status were obtained by fighting. Successful war leaders attracted freemen to their war bands. Members of the war band would pledge loyalty and service in return for protection, sustenance, and a share of the plunder. 
With time, leaders of these warbands could establish themselves as local lords, or jarls, with the most successful claiming the title of king. At around the same time, distinct ethnic identities emerged among the Norse, leading to broad tribal groups such as the Danes, the Swedes, and the Norse of Norway. Soon there would be kings who claimed to be King of Sweden or King of Denmark, though we know next to nothing of these kings until the 900s. During this intermediate stage of state formation, a new king or jarl's goal was to establish his own authority. This was no small feat. Anyone who could claim royal blood, a vague concept, whether they be a bastard or legitimate child, could be king if he had enough manpower behind him. Kings had to assert military strength and provide plunder for their retinue. Sometimes multiple people would claim to be king at one time, and others would hold the title of king while holding no lands at all. These so-called sea kings would sail about seeking plunder and growing their band of followers until they could return to their homeland and fight for the throne. If no power was available back in Scandinavia, however, perhaps they could seek land and titles overseas. With royal authority so tenuous as late as the 10th century, there is very little that Norse kings could do to prevent their erstwhile subjects from sailing off to parts unknown in search of wealth and fame. Besides, Sometimes such voyages brought back new wealth and established new trade routes, or provided a convenient outlet for the restless. At any rate, it was these Norse warriors who sailed in search of fortune and prestige that are called Vikings. It is important to note that, while Norse culture from the 8th to 12th centuries could be especially violent, most Norse people were not Vikings, in the same way that most people in medieval France were not knights or men-at-arms. With that said, being a Viking held attractions for the well-born and low-born alike, though only the well-born could hope to be king. Exactly what made a person well-born, it might be said, is kind of up for debate. You had to prove that you came from some royal lineage, but as we see in many instances, some kind of mythic story could be created to connect you to the gods or to some mythical king of yore. But anyhow... By the 8th century, the Germanic peoples who had migrated earlier had begun to form established realms and dominions, as well as new cultural identities, such as the Franks and Anglo-Saxons. Kings in Sweden and Denmark were establishing enough authority that raiding fellow Norse peoples was unwise. As such, Norse people, with Vikings taking the lead among them, set out in all directions seeking new opportunities, whether for plunder, trade, or settlement. For this reason, the Viking Age can be understood, in some way, as the last wave of Germanic migration, though it comes after the normally understood migration period. It was these enterprising Vikings that raided Lindisfarne, though, as we shall see, they were up to a lot more than just that. The Viking Age took place roughly from the end of the 8th century to the middle of the 13th century, though it began and ended at different times within that range in different places. During this dynamic period of Viking exploration, warring, and colonization, Vikings covered every nook of the known world and even went beyond. Swedes offered, often headed eastward. They traveled into what is modern-day Russia and Poland, sailing up the major rivers in their long, shallow-draft boats known as longships. These longships were open-topped, though tents could be raised on the deck. They were powered by oarsmen in shallow water and a single square sail on open waters. 
At either end they were fitted with tall prows, shaped like a bishop's crozier, sometimes outfitted with decorative designs. In times of war, shields could be fixed over the gunwales for defensive purposes or to be ready for a raid. These ships were wonderful at zipping up rivers or along coastlines. Sails could be lowered when approaching a raiding site so as to remain concealed, and the shallow draft meant they could be beached and launched rapidly. Additionally, they could be rolled overland to transfer from one body of water to another. East Sailing Vikings settled communities across eastern Europe and established trade routes that stretched southward to the Black Sea and Caspian Sea. Vikings who settled in eastern Europe along rivers like the Dnieper and the Volga were known as the Rus. Some of their most famous settlements were Novgorod and Kiev. Among the Greeks of the Byzantine Empire, they came to be known as Varangians. The Byzantine Emperor hired a number of them as his own personal bodyguard, known as the Varangian Guard. At their height, they established trade routes reaching as far as India, though it is doubtful that many, if any, Vikings themselves traveled that far. It is sort of fun to note um, that in many Viking settlements, even in England, they discovered coins that have uh, Arabic on them and come from the Far East, whether that be in Saudi Arabia or even from India. That's one of the key pieces of evidence. West Sailing Vikings, primarily Danes and Norwegians, operated a bit differently and are the iconic Vikings of the Western imagination. Their earliest activities involved coastal and riparian raids in the British Isles and the Frankish Empire. Over time, however, Vikings sailed further west and south, with raids extending into the Iberian Peninsula and into the Mediterranean Sea. Vikings in the west, like their brethren in the east, were also interested in settling down and acquiring their own lands. Viking raiders terrorized France, sailing up the Seine and striking as far inland as Paris. By the 870s, some of these Vikings had occupied the city of Rouen and used it as a base of operations for several decades. When the leader of these Rouen-based Vikings, Rollo, was defeated by King Charles the Simple of West Francia during the Siege of Chartres in 911, the king made a deal with the Vikings. Rollo was made Duke of Normandy and the Vikings settled that region of northern France and returned for being loyal subjects and defending the land from future raids. The British Isles are perhaps the most famous target for Viking incursions, and we will cover their attacks on England momentarily. But many Vikings sailed on to attack Scotland and Ireland, sometimes settling on adjacent islands like Orkney and the Hebrides, or, in the case of Ireland, settling many important cities, with Dublin being the most famous legacy. I, if I'm not mistaken, I believe most coastal cities in Ireland were originally settled by the Vikings, and that the indigenous Irish uh, initially didn't really have many cities at all. Additionally, others sailed northward and further west. These explorers first hit upon Iceland, which had first been settled by Eremitic Irish monks, that means living as hermits. One early name for the island was Snæland, or Snowland. And also, you could probably tell my Scandinavian language skills are not very good, so please excuse any silly-sounding names. The first permanent Norse settlers, however, were Norwegians, who simply called the place Iceland. It had a lot of ice. Icelanders would play an incredibly important role in shaping the legacy of Viking culture during the Middle Ages through the writing down of the Eddas and Sagas, though more on that later. 
The first permanent Norwegian Viking settlement was made by one in excuse me, Ingolfir Arnarson at the site of Reykjavik in 874. He was followed soon after by more Viking settlers and their slaves who were often Scottish or Irish. By 930, most arable land had been claimed and soon Icelanders sailed farther west to Greenland. The Viking exploration of Greenland and brief settlement in North America by Eric the Red and his son Leif Erikson is now famous. The site of the settlement in Newfoundland, Lons O Meadows, marks the extreme western extent of Viking activity by the beginning of the 11th century, which also marks uh, what is generally recognized as the first European discovery of North America, though of course that did not lead to continuous occupation and settlement. While all of these events would make rewarding discussions for future episodes, our current interest is in the Vikings themselves and in their famed invasions of England. This overview of the Viking Age leads us to a natural question. How do we know what the Vikings did? As mentioned earlier, the Vikings existed between the twilight of prehistory and the dawn of historiography, that is, written history. While today a great body of what we know about the Vikings has been fleshed out by archaeology, the systematic study of Viking-era archaeological sites did not begin until the 19th century. At that time of romantic nationalism, Vikings were reimagined in the popular mind as brave, heroic ancestors to the peoples of northern Europe. Runes, horned helmets, valkyries, and sword-swinging adventurers came together to make up a blonde-haired version of Odysseus or Ajax. Today, we have a far more balanced view of archaeological finds and understand Norse society to have been a complicated mix of many elements. There were violent, bloodthirsty raiders, but there was also a rich culture of art, stories, and interesting legal customs. But all of this is comparatively recent. As any student of the Dark Ages will tell you, written sources are amazingly sparse, especially as one moves their attention further and further from the Mediterranean world. Most written records that discuss the Vikings in northern and western Europe come from ecclesiastical church histories. This fits with the fact that, in the early Middle Ages, the church was the center of learning in European society. The clergy were among the few people with the time, resources, and inclination to learn to read and write and their work, especially in monasteries, often consisted of preserving records and maintaining libraries. The main written sources for Viking activities in England, for instance, come from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and Asser's The Life of King Alfred. The Chronicle was a project begun by King Alfred of Wessex in the 9th century to record all known major events in England up until his own time. The Chronicle was distributed to monasteries around England where it was updated at the local level until the Norman Conquest of 1066. Asser, who wrote the first biography of King Alfred, was one of Alfred's bishops and close advisors. As is easily imagined, these accounts, while extremely useful, also focus on painting the Vikings as bloodthirsty pagans and King Alfred as the wise defender of Christendom. While these may not be incorrect conclusions, they are hardly the full picture. The Norse of the pagan Viking age did not write much down. They did, however, possess a written language, as did all the pre-Christian Germanic peoples. They wrote in letters called runes, but most information, whether historical or religious, was handed down orally in the form of poems, songs, and ballads. 
even laws and courts were delivered by law speakers, who retained their knowledge of ancient laws and customs in their heads. Runes were mostly employed in brief inscriptions on weapons, armor, or runestones. Runestones often served as commemorative markers of historic deeds, but they do not function as detailed historical accounts. It is sort of funny to note that some runic inscriptions on runestones basically amount to someone saying, um, Ivar was here, something very short and simple. Thus, most Viking folklore and history was written down long after the fact by Christianized Norsemen who employed a Latinized alphabet. Sometimes these accounts were written in church Latin, as by the medieval Danish historian and theologian Saxo Grammaticus. That was not his birth name, if you're curious. <laughs> Young Saxo. Uh, the largest body of accounts, however, comes from Iceland. After their Christianization, many Icelanders took to writing down their ancestral histories, legends, and mythologies during the High Middle Ages. Most of these accounts were written in Icelandic and consist of two basic types, Eddas and Sagas. The exact word origin of Edda is unknown, but they tended to be compilations of multiple shorter accounts. Two major Eddas survive, the Poetic Edda and the Prose Edda. Their names suggest their differing formats. Sagas were longer accounts about single subjects. Often they were histories of Icelandic families, while other sagas tell of epic legends of the Norse heroic past. The most famous compiler and writer of both Eddas and sagas was Snorri Sturluson, which is a name I adore, who was a prominent Icelandic leader and law speaker that died in 1241, again in the High Middle Ages. It is thanks to Snorri that we have much of what we know about Norse mythology and heroic legend. It is through this prehistoric lens of oral myth and legend that we must gaze in order to understand, as best we can, how the Vikings saw their world. The best analog for how Vikings saw the world and their place in it, and one that has been made often since the 19th century, is the worldview of the Greeks of the Archaic period, those who existed before extensive writing in a time when information was primarily retained and related through oral custom. From Greece comes the figure of the epic poet, exemplified in the semi-mythical figure of Homer, who told of the interactions of heroes like Odysseus and Ajax and the fickle gods. In Celtic history, there was the bard. But in Norse tradition, myths and stories were told by skalds, who acted as a kind of minstrel. Skalds would perform at significant gatherings, called things or tings, or sacrificial feasts, called blots. Blot, I believe, roughly equates to blood, like as in a blood sacrifice. And no doubt wealthier kings and jarls would have a resident skald in their mead hall to regale and entertain their guests. These skalds would tell stories, often handed down for generations, about how the world came to be. Such stories combined the doings of the gods, for the Norse believed in many pagan deities, and the actions of heroic men who loomed larger than life. As time went on, it is doubtless that skalds embellished or innovated, and, unlike the major monotheistic religions, there was no strict doctrine of Norse belief. Nor was there any authoritative historical account as we would understand it today. Rather, the Norse understood the past to be populated by a cast of mythical characters, gods, frost giants, dwarfs, elves, dragons, and human heroes, whose lives were based on certain guiding principles. 
Odin, for instance, was the primary god, the Allfather, and Thor was his good-natured but dim-witted son. But different stories would involve them in human affairs in different ways. Unlike accounts from the Bible, for instance, where a singular god interacts with his chosen people in a linear, absolute, permanent way, the gods of Norse mythology existed as ideas and characters who often found themselves in new situations and stories. In Greek mythology, for instance, Zeus never seems to tire of disguising himself as an animal and having his way with a beautiful human woman. And no matter how many times they tell the stories, there's not any strict historical setting or order of events. It is worth noting that even the authoritative accounts that we have are only those that Christian writers chose to write down long after they ceased to be living traditions for the Norse. This vagueness is exemplified in the Norse creation myth. Viking cosmology imagined a universe consisting of multiple worlds that were all linked by Yggdrasil, the vast world tree whose branches overstretched all existence, though few written details explain how exactly Yggdrasil functioned in Norse mythology. In the beginning, there were two worlds, Muspel, a world of fire, and Niflheim, a world of ice. When these two worlds came into contact, the ice melted, and from that water came a frost giant called Ymir. From Ymir's sweat came more frost giants, which led to a race of frost giants. Furthermore, a cow emerged from the snowmelt, called Odhumla. Odhumla produced rivers of milk that fed Ymir, while her licking of the ice uncovered another frost giant, Buri. Buri had a son, Bor, though with whom it is unclear. Bor married the beautiful Bestla, another frost giant, one presumes, and had three sons, the first of which was Odin. These three sons were the first of the gods. The three gods then slew Ymir and used the pieces of his body, as well as some parts of the two existing worlds, to create a new world. They made this world a circle. Fires from his spell made the heavens, while dark and light giants were made into the night and day, as well as the sun and moon. Both duos followed each other around the world, creating the day-night cycle. Around the edges of the world, the gods made Jotunheim, or, or Jotunheim, where the frost giants lived. These giants plotted revenge against the gods for killing Ymir. Meanwhile, the gods created a place for humans in the world, Midgard, or Middle-earth. The gods created humans from two trees. One was an ash tree, called Ask, which became man. The second was an elm tree, called Embla, which became woman. From these first two, all humans descended, which it's kind of trippy that uh, the male in the Norse mythology starts with an A, Ask, and the female, first female, starts with an E, Embla, sort of like Adam and Eve. Um, and trees, of course, are very tightly bound into this story. From these first two, all humans descended. The gods created a realm for themselves in the heavens called Asgard, which was linked to the earth by a magical rainbow bridge, which explained the existence of rainbows. Asgard was a place of many great halls and mansions, where the gods conducted their business and held never-ending feasts, much like the Greek Mount Olympus. Odin held his court there, where he hosted worthy warriors who had fallen in battle. These warriors were whisked away from the earthly battlefield by Valkyrie, beautiful flying women, who had chosen them as being worthy. These warriors resided in a special hall which everyone's heard of, Valhalla, 
where they were waited upon by all the most beautiful virgins who had died before Mary. The idea was that, at some unspecified point in the future, would come Ragnarok, or the end time. At that time, the giants would break free and fight the gods to the death. The chosen warriors would fight alongside Odin and the gods in a battle that would destroy the universe. At the end of it all, the world would start all over again. It is not clear how seriously the Norse took this worldview that left little place for anyone who is not a successful warrior. Most Norse people did not strive to die on the battlefield, even warriors. And this picture has no role for women except, oxymoronically, as virginal concubines. If anything, this worldview conveyed to Norse people that all things ended, especially living things, and that life was more about the process of living than reaching a defined end. All things must come to an end, and people live in a world governed by the vicissitudes of gods and fates. The only thing that lived on for certain was a man's reputation, his honor. As such, the most important thing for a Norseman was to live and die honorably. If he did not, he would be a social outcast and be forgotten. In the Norse language, a man without honor would literally be a nothing. And nevertheless, the Norse did actively worship the gods and seek to earn their assistance and favor. Temples and shrines would be made to certain gods, and there was devoted household worship, much as in ancient Greece and Rome, and pretty much any place else with the pagan religious structure that we know about. The most common form of appeasing the gods was ritual sacrifices, which would take place at Blots, great feasts named for blood sacrifice. Usually, animals were sacrificed in Eden, but occasionally humans were sacrificed too. Often, riches were sacrificed to give thanks for victories. This, as well as Norse burial practices, are one reason that there is significant archaeological evidence for their customs. Whole ships were buried, containing numerous artifacts and symbols of wealth. Thor was the friendliest of the gods, and was one of the most popular. As such, many Norse pagans wore Thor amulets, shaped like this mythical hammer, Mjol- excuse me, shaped like his mythical hammer, Mjolnir, to invoke his assistance. Other popular gods included Freyr, the god of fertility, and his sister Freya, the goddess of love and sex. Additionally, there were the Dees, who were ghostly women that determined the fate of every person upon their birth, much like a deterministic guardian angel. In all of these ways, the stories and worship of the gods mirrored very closely other pagan cultures that are known. Just as interesting were the stories that the Norse told about human affairs. During the Viking Age, the Norse frequently told legends about their heroic past, a practice common among most Germanic peoples in the proto-historic age, and one common among other cultures in similar periods of development. These heroic legends often took place during the vague setting of the migration period, though the Norse did not attach firm dates to these stories, and the virgins we have today come mostly from Icelanders. Beowulf, though an Anglo-Saxon legend, is a prime example of this kind of story. The most famous example of this legend, however, is the saga of the Volsungs. The saga relates the mythic origins of some of the Norse royal dynasties, real or imagined, and expounds on the relationship between Sigurd and Brunhild that takes place in the era of the Hunnic invasion against the Burgundians. The characters are based on various real names from the past of the migration period, but are rearranged in totally fictional settings. 
Though the story has been retold in various versions, the basic facts center on Sigurd's slaying of the dragon Fafnir, the acquisition of a cursed ring, and his wooing of the clairvoyant Brunhild, a beautiful princess. While agreeing to marry him, Brunhild warns that the two are not fated to be together. Gunnar, king of the Burgundians, plots to kill Sigurd to regain Brunhild and is somewhat successful, though one of his brothers is killed by Sigurd. Brunhild commits suicide in grief, and Gunnar is fated to be defeated by the Huns. A variant of the story is told in the German Nibelungenlied, and went on to great fame and effect during the Romantic nationalism of the 19th century. I cannot be sure for you, but for me, it was while watching Bugs Bunny dressed as Brunhilde to Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries that I first encountered this legacy as a wee lad. An epic tale more relevant to our, our current concerns, however, centers on the Odysseus-like character of Ragnar Lodbrok. Ragnar Lodbrok emerges from Norse legend and history as a ubiquitous, ever-present hero tied by various stories to the thrones of Norway, Denmark, and Sweden, and standing as the father of a host of infamous Vikings. Ragnar is a, is a regular character in various Norse oral legends and was written about by the later medieval historians such as Saxo Grammaticus. There is no single version of his life and it is unclear if he was vaguely based off of a real person, or if he is completely the stuff of legend. I tend to think that his name was at least originally tied to a real person, though most of the stories about him are wild inventions to lend prestige to later leaders and rulers. At any rate, we can cobble together a rough outline of the life of Ragnar Lodbrok from these varied accounts. Ragnar was purported to be the son of Sigurd Ring, different from the Sigurd of the Volsungs, who had become king of Denmark and Sweden after overthrowing his uncle, Harald Wartooth, at the epic battle of Bravelier, in which Odin himself was said to have intervened. Upon Ring's death, Ragnar too would become king of Sweden and Denmark, making him the most powerful man in Scandinavia. Such an association would, of course, lend prestige to those two crowns as well. A consistent theme in Ragnar's life was his pursuit of fame and women. Upon learning of Thora, the beautiful wife of a Swedish Jarl, Ragnar set his intentions upon marrying her. The trouble was that her father had set a giant serpent around her cabin to guard her. If a man could defeat the serpent, he would win Thora's hand. So Ragnar donned a pair of shaggy trousers, which is the literal meaning of Lodbrok, and fought the beast. The pants supposedly protected him from the spitting poison of the creature, and he was successful in killing it, thus winning Thora. With her, he had two sons, though she later died. In another legend, Ragnar, newly single, discovers the beautiful daughter of two peasants named Kraka, and resolves to marry her. Kraka, however, was really Aslog, the daughter of Sigurd Fafnisbane, the slayer of Fafnir who had been murdered, the orphan girl had been concealed in a giant harp by her foster father and eventually put into the care of the peasant family, only to mature into the most beautiful woman in the land. Predictably, Ragnar had many sons through Aslog as well. 
With these deeds done, Ragnar was now the most prominent man in the land, and his sons, heirs to the Danish and Swedish thrones, were also linked to the prestige of the mythical Sigurd and Brunhild. His sons were legion. Ivar the Boneless, Sigurd Snake in the Eye, Bjorn Ironside, Halfdan Ragnarsson, Ubba, Hvitserk, Eric Weatherhat, and more besides. Where the story grows interesting, however, is that the bulk of the men listed as his sons were real historical persons, and at least some of them were verifiable brothers, such as Ivar and Halfdan. Others, such as Ubba, however, were most likely not related to these two men in reality. The story grows more interesting as events proceed closer to recorded history. Ragnar, according to the tale of the sons of Ragnar, grew concerned that the deeds of his many sons were beginning to overshadow himself. As such, he was determined to conquer and invade all of England with the assistance of only two Nars, bulky and awkward Norse cargo boats filled with men. He landed in England, which was ruled by one king, Ela. Ela, fearing the vengeance of Ragnar's sons if Ragnar was to be killed, but also uncertain if the invader was in fact Ragnar, ordered his men to do no harm to the Viking leader, only killing his men. Ragnar had badly miscalculated Ela's forces, and his followers were cut down in the great battle. Ela's men surrounded Ragnar and piled on top of him with their shields, restraining and capturing him. Ela interrogated Ragnar to learn his identity, but to no avail. Thus, he ordered his men to cast Ragnar into a snake pit, but to release him if he was revealed to be Ragnar. Ragnar Lodbrok was immune to the snakes thanks to his shaggy trousers, but Ela had these removed and the snakes began to sink their venomous fangs into him. Ela asked him one last time of his identity, but the dying Ragnar only replied that the young pigs would now squeal if they knew what the old boar suffered. Ela feared that this meant they had indeed killed Ragnar Lodbrok and would soon suffer the wrath of his many children. Accordingly, Ela sent a messenger to the sons of Ragnar in Denmark. As the messenger told them the news, all of the sons reacted in superlative displays of anger. Bjorn shattered his spear by clenching his fist around it. Sigurd, who had been trimming his nails with a knife, cut deep to the bone without flinching. All were in a furor, except for Ivar. When the brothers proposed killing the messenger, Ivar stayed their hands, instructing the messenger to return in peace. It was no use, Ivar observed, to go and kill innocent men. Ragnar had courted disaster, and there was nothing to be done except perhaps to seek financial compensation. The other brothers were disgusted at Ivar's cowardice, but, owing to Ivar's clout with the people of Denmark, his refusal to fight was decisive. The messenger returned to Ela and told him of the brothers' reactions, which confirmed in Ela the belief that there was little to fear if Ivar would stay out of the fight. Nevertheless, the other brothers launched an invasion of England, but, lacking Ivar's support, were easily thrown back by the powerful Ela. Seeking this defeat, or excuse me, seeing this defeat, Ivar resolved to go to Ela's court and seek compensation. Ivar arrived in peace, complimenting Ela on his military strength, asserting that he himself could never hope to defeat the king of England. Instead, he sought modest compensation. Ivar asked for as much land as he could cover with an ox's hide. Ela, perplexed, accepted the terms and said that Ivar could use the biggest hide he could find. Ivar, the crafty man, found a large old ox hide, 
stretched it, and then had it cut into the finest strips possible before tying these into an enormous rope. He had this rope stretched around a large field, large enough for a mighty city. In this land, now Ivar's, he had a great new settlement built, named London. With time, Ivar became King Ella's trusted counselor and became quite a popular became quite popular as a just administrator in the land, as I guess the King of London. Secretly, he bid his brother send him gold and silver, with which he bought over the king's finest soldiers to his own employ. With this done, he encouraged his brothers to attack King Ella again with all their might. Simultaneously, he told Ella that he had been powerless to stop his brother's wrath, but that the king had little to fear and should counterattack. Ivar would honor his agreement and remain neutral. The king's army, however, had been greatly reduced thanks to Ivar's poaching, and the sons of Ragnar beat Ella in battle, capturing him. Upon Ivar's advice, a woodcarver was brought in to perform the infamous Blood Eagle. The back of Ella's ribcage was sliced open, and the lungs pulled out to fan out across his back, like a monstrous red eagle. According to the saga, Ivar went on to be the king of England, until his own dying day whereupon he ordered his body buried near where most Viking raids had occurred, declaring that anyone who landed there would fail in battle. Harold Hardrada, who would invade England with a Viking army in 1066, landed there and was defeated at Stamford Bridge by King Harold Godwinson. But the tale went, when William the Bastard landed the same year, he unearthed Ivar's body and burned it on a funeral pyre, breaking the curse. William went on to defeat Harold at Hastings and became King William the Conqueror. It is a timeless tale and reminds one of the exploits of William Penn and his dealings with the Indians of North America, but it is clearly a work, a creative work rather than a strictly historical one. Neither Ayla nor Ivar were ever King of England, and Ivar certainly never founded the city of London. But there is some truth to the story as well. The legendary sons of Ragnar did invade England, at least in a sense. Also, William the Bastard did win over the uh, as king of England, though obviously he did not land at the exact same location as Harold Hardrada. Though the true events of the Great Heathen Army, as it was called, involves less whimsy and fancy, it is a story of legendary figures and the fates of kingdoms all the same. During the early Middle Ages, the British Isles was a place of many peoples and many kingdoms. Originally, the modern regions of England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales had been occupied by a variety of Celtic peoples. The Celts had been in the British Isles about as long as Germanic peoples had occupied Scandinavia, but unlike the early Norse, the Celtic tribes of England were invaded and conquered by the Roman Empire during the 1st century AD. The Romans succeeded in conquering most of modern-day England in about 40 years, which they named Britannia, or Britannia. Except for some boggy regions and large hills in the middle and northern part of the country, Britannia was a mostly flat and hospitable place home to rich forests and fertile plains. The Roman conquest extended into parts of Wales, named Cambria, and the Scottish lowlands called Caledonia though the most Romanized regions were in the south and east. 
Cambria brought a good deal of mineral wealth to the empire. While most of the population remained genetically Celtic, the laws, customs, and culture of Britannia became largely Roman. Cities like Londinium were developed and many roads were built across the land. Watling Street is one of the best-known legacies of these projects today. Famously, the Romans built two major walls, Hadrian's Wall and the Antonine Wall, to defend the northern borders of Britannia from barbarian incursion. The Romans never succeeded in subduing the northernmost Celts, such as the Picts, or the many Celtic tribes of Ireland, called Hibernia then. During the 300s, Christianity was first introduced, and Britannia became a largely Christian province. As the Western Roman Empire began its long decline in the 4th century, however, Britannia was no exception. Its population declined. Its protective legions were diverted to civil wars in Gaul and Italy, leaving the land vulnerable to Celtic raids and incursions. The economy suffered from loss of trade, and Britons increasingly had to fend for themselves. It was during this time that many hordes of Roman coins and jewelry were buried for safekeeping. When their owners were killed or displaced, their hordes remained buried to be found by modern-day archaeologists. The Roman presence in Britannia was finally suspended in the first years of the 400s in the heyday of the Germanic migrations. While there remained some pockets of Romano-British culture, the Britons, like the mythical King Arthur, largely reverted to a decentralized, tribal Celtic society. Just as they did with other parts of the Roman Empire, Germanic peoples migrated to Britain. The three major Germanic tribes that famously made the voyage were the Angles, Saxons, and Jutes. The Saxons came from what is now northern Germany, while the Angles came from southern Denmark and the Jutes from northern Denmark, which is fittingly called Jutland today. The Saxons settled primarily in the south-central part of Britannia, the Jutes around what is now Kent, and the Angles along the central and northern east coast, such as in the region of East Anglia, which is where the whole Angles name comes from. These migrants were Germanic and pagan, and they fought many battles in their displacement of the Celtic Britons, who were pushed westward to places such as Wales and Cornwall. While they would sometimes occupy old Roman ruins in key locations, these new peoples were nearly totally devoid of Roman or Christian influences. Over time, they would come to call themselves Anglo-Saxons, or sometimes just Saxons. From the Angles, however, would come their word for their own language, English, and the name for the whole region, England. Life for the Anglo-Saxons was, was very similar to the lives led by their Norse counterparts at this time. Life was based around rural agricultural communities, and political leadership rested in military strongmen who acted in the defense of local areas in exchange for rents. Instead of jarls, however, the Anglo-Saxons had earls, eldermen, and thanes. From 596 through the 600s, the Anglo-Saxons were Christianized both from missions sent by Pope Gregory the Great and from Celtic-Irish monks. The papal mission from Rome would establish its power in Canterbury, the seat of the Anglican Church today, and the Irish missionaries would set up the monastery at Lindisfarne. Thus, by the late 600s, the Anglo-Saxons saw themselves as culturally distinct from their Germanic cousins in central and far northern Europe, due to their Christianity, while also distinct from their Celtic neighbors to the north and west, because of their cultural ethnic heritage. This time in English history has traditionally been called the Heptarchy, which translates roughly to seven rulers or seven kings. 
While there was no permanent set of seven kingdoms, the Anglo-Saxons formed many different kingdoms and sub-kingdoms during this time that existed in competition with one another for power and prominence. The general trend was that power became concentrated in fewer and fewer kingdoms over time. For instance, small kingdoms like Kent and Middlesex were eventually absorbed under the overlordship of larger kingdoms like Wessex or Mercia. Control of London, a middle-sized trading port on the Thames River, passed between Mercia and Wessex. In general, however, Wessex, land of the West Saxons, held the south-central part of England, Mercia dominated the Midlands, and Northumbria held sway in the northeast, and realms like East Anglia tried to survive as best they could. By the early 800s, Wessex had come to be recognized as the preeminent Anglo-Saxon kingdom under King Egbert, but it could hardly claim to have any real direct power over its northern neighbors. These struggles among Saxons, however, were about to be made nearly irrelevant. Viking activity began to increase notably in the 830s. In 836, a fleet of roughly 30 Danish longships landed in the west of Wessex and began raiding. King Egbert marched against them, and the two armies met in the open field at the Battle of Carhampton. As best as can be discerned, the Vikings and Anglo-Saxons both fought in similar ways, using mostly spears and large wooden shields. They would form shield walls and shove against each other until one side broke. In the rout and confusion that followed, the losing side could could sustain many casualties. At Carampton, the Anglo-Saxons broke first and were driven away with heavy losses. The Vikings raided freely and made off with great booty. Fortunately for the Saxons, however, the Vikings at that time were seasonal raiders and were back on their ships in short order to return to their homelands before winter set in. Two years later, in 838, many Danish Vikings landed in Cornwall and formed an alliance with the Celtic Cornish to attack Wessex. King Egbert was better prepared this time, though, and defeated the combined forces in battle, driving the Viking threat away for a time. Such pitched battles, however, were relatively rare. Despite their ferocious reputation, the Vikings were more or less an even match to the Saxons man for man. The Vikings' true strength lay in their mobility and ability to raid a town before it had time to call for aid. Thus, it was usually coastal villages or monasteries that had the most to fear, and inhabitants could flee and return once the Vikings left if they had had enough of a warning. The 850s witnessed a major escalation of Viking incursions. Viking forces now began overwintering on the island of Thanet off the coast of Kent. That's in the southeastern corner of England. This meant raids could happen for a longer period of the year. One fleet of over 300 ships landed and defeated the King of Mercia in battle. When the army marched on Wessex, however, the Vikings were badly defeated and many of their ships destroyed in a naval battle which in itself was quite a rare thing for the age. Compared to other targets of Viking raids, Anglo-Saxons were unusually aggressive in bringing the Vikings to battle. Open battles were incredibly risky. If the Vikings lost, they could usually hop in their ships and try again later. If the defenders lost, however, they could leave their entire kingdom open for sack and plunder. While the Vikings were an increasingly frightening problem, the Anglo-Saxons could give as good as they got, and were not yet under existential threat.
In 865, in the midst of other smaller raids, a massive Viking army landed in East Anglia, which was called by contemporary sources the Great Heathen Army. This moniker symbolizes the primary difference between the Vikings and their victims in England, religion. Both Vikings and the Anglo-Saxons were Germanic peoples with shared legends, agricultural methods, means of fighting, and similar social structures. Their outlooks on the eternal, the meaning of life, and the religious mores, however, stood in stark contrast. There is no real way to know how large the army was, only that it was by far the largest Viking force to land in Britain and that it was from Denmark. The best estimates number it at several thousand warriors, but not tens of thousands. Among its leaders, the most famous were Ivar, Halfdan, and Ubba. Later Norse legends, as discussed earlier, called Ivar the Boneless and Halfdan Ragnarsson, connecting them both as brothers to one another and sons of the legendary Ragnar Lodbrok. Contemporary Anglo-Saxon accounts make no note of this relationship, except in noting that Ivar and Halfdan were brothers. Ubba, though also later named as son of Ragnar Lodbrok, appears not to have been related in reality. That was the addition of later Icelandic legend-tellers. According to the sagas, this invasion was intended to seek revenge for the death of Ragnar at the hand of King Ella. But in reality, this force intended to invade England and take its lands for Danish settlement. Upon landing in East Anglia, again, that's just to the, the sort of middle east of England for those unacquainted, the Danes evidently overawed the locals with the size of their army. The East Angles made a peace deal with the invaders, permitting them to stay in peace if the locals provided the Vikings with horses. This would enable the army to strike other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms rapidly by land. From the East Angles, the Danes must also have learned that Northumbria was divided in a civil war between two rivals for the Northumbrian throne, Osbert and Ayla. Generally, Anglo-Saxons did not concern themselves when their neighboring kingdoms were attacked. They did not yet have a sense of common English nationality and often saw the weakening of their neighbors as an advantage. Only later would Wessex change that dynamic. At any rate, the Danes marched rapidly on Northumbria in 866 and met little opposition from the warring locals. They marched into the capital city of York without contest. In the spring of 867, the next year, Kings Ayla and Osbert made a truce and marched to recapture York together. Since the walls were in a state of disrepair, the Northumbrians made it into the city without difficulty, but in the streets of York they were outmaneuvered by the Danes and badly defeated. Both Ayla and Osbert were killed in the battle, likely serving as the foundation for the mythical killing of Ayla by the sons of Ragnar. The Battle of York had decimated the nobility of Northumbria, permitting the Danes to replace or subdue the ruling elite. A puppet king, Ecbert, was put in place and the Danes resided in York for another year. In the spring of 869, the Danes marched on Mercia to the south. King Burgred of Mercia called upon King Ethelred of Wessex for aid, and Wessex marched north. As promising as the Anglo-Saxon alliance appeared, it was not meant to be. The Allied armies pinned the Danes within the city of Nottingham for and laid siege. The armies disagreed, however, on how to proceed. Burgred, it seems, did not want to risk a bloody assault on the town, and so made peace with the Vikings on condition that they returned to Northumbria, which they did. Ethelred, apparently frustrated, returned south and would not assist Mercia in the future.
Perhaps frustrated at being stopped in Mercia, the Danes marched back to East Anglia, where they proceeded to sack every monastery in sight and kill the resident monks. The East Angles were defeated in battle and their king Edmund was captured. Later accounts from the High Middle Ages declared that the Danes had offered for King Edmund to retain his crown if he became a pagan. Upon his refusal, he was shot full of arrows, like the more famous St. Sebastian, and beheaded. During that time, he was regarded as a patron saint of England. Whatever happened in reality, Edmund was killed and a puppet king put in his place, effectively making East Anglia another Viking kingdom. Historians generally believe that Ivar died around this time as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle stops mentioning him, which again highlights that one of our really only direct sources for what actually happened is the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. By 870, the Danes had established a firm Viking presence in England. Evidence suggests that Norse traders were making regular visits and, among other goods, were likely purchasing Saxon slaves from the invaders. Likely feeling new confidence from the success in East Anglia, the Viking army marched westward to invade Wessex. King Ethelred and his brother, Alfred, fought nearly ten battles against the Vikings, resulting in no clear winner. Both sides were badly bloodied, and in 871, King Ethelred died, making Alfred king of Wessex. Simultaneously, the Danes were reinforced by a new army under one Guthrum, who had sailed up the Thames. Of all the Anglo-Saxon kings, Alfred has perhaps the strongest legacy as a faithful Christian, scholar, and slayer of the Vikings. One contributor to this reputation, of course, is that the major primary sources for the period, such as his biography by Asser and the Chronicle as mentioned above, were written by his advisors and supporters. In the short term, however, Alfred was defeated twice in 871 and reached a truce with the invaders, likely having paid them tribute. This tribute to the Vikings paid by local leaders to avoid violence would later be known as Danegeld and became a common staple in Viking-English relations. Much to Alfred's relief, the Danes were forced to return north when Ecbert, the puppet king of Northumbria, revolted. Ecbert was quickly defeated and slain, and by 872, the Danes were once again marching on Mercia. By 873, Mercia fell to the Danes, and King Burgred fled to live in exile in Rome, where he shortly died. Another puppet king was installed, and the Vikings had succeeded in conquering three-fourths of England. Alfred and Wessex stood alone as the last major outpost of Christianity and Anglo-Saxon independence in England, and the situation was dire. Fortunately for Wessex, however, the Danes had come in search of land. Half of the Danish force left under Halfdan to settle in Northumbria. There, Halfdan split the kingdom in two, leaving the northern half under local control and taking the southern half for himself and his loyal warriors, creating a Viking kingdom in York, now called Jorvik. Guthrum led the remaining force to eastern Mercia, where they stayed until 875. The Danes suddenly invaded Wessex in the fall of 875, giving Alfred the slip. They marched to the opposite end of Wessex and took refuge in the town of Wareham, which was situated between two rivers and easily defended. Alfred besieged the town, but the size of the Danish army forced a stalemate. Alfred, hoping for a speedy solution, offered a truce in which oaths would be sworn, hostages exchanged, and Danegeld paid for the Vikings to leave. 
Money was given, hostages exchanged, and the Vikings swore on a blood-caked Thor ring to leave. That was a practice of the Vikings to swear on Thor rings. It was a ruse, however, and the Viking and the Danes killed the Saxon hostages, abandoned their own, and fled with the money. Half the army traveled by sea, and the other half overland to Exeter, where they took refuge again. Just for those of you unaware of the geography, this is all basically taking place within the southern central and southern western parts of England. The sea-bound Danes, however, encountered a storm that sank over a hundred ships, thus giving Alfred a decisive numbers advantage. When the Danes finally surrendered in 877, they were forced to go to Mercia, where they had followed half Dan's model from Northumbria. Danes took the eastern half of Mercia as their own, leaving western Mercia under the control of their puppet king. The Anglo-Saxon peasantry was largely left in place, while the ruling class and estates were supplanted by the incoming Danes. <clears throat> Despite appearances, Guthrum had not yet given up. Breaking with all norms and conventions of fighting in the Middle Ages, Guthrum launched a surprise attack on Alfred's household in early January of 878, which had just concluded Christmas celebrations at Chippenham. Alfred barely escaped with his family and household guard and was forced to seek refuge in the Somerset Levels, a swampy land of forests, bogs, and rivers in the south of Wessex, basically right up against the southern English coast. This put Guthrum in a real pickle. His army, while intimidating, was too small to occupy all of Wessex, and he had hoped to capture or kill Alfred and thereby install a puppet king. Though there are famous legends of Alfred living with peasants at this time and receiving visions from saints, he set up camp on the island of Athelney in the midst of the swamps and fens where the Danes could not reach him. Throughout his time in the levels, he sent messengers and raiding parties out to harass the Vikings and reassure his subjects that their king had not abandoned them. In an unforeseen way, he had turned the tactics of raiding against the masters of raiding themselves. Through his agents, Alfred sent word for his loyal West Saxons to assemble in secret at a chosen location in May. Riding there, he met them and rapidly marched his army to surprise the Danes at Eddington. At the battle, he roundly defeated the Danes and forced Guthrum to take shelter in a nearby stronghold. After a few weeks, Guthrum was defeated and surrendered. In a stroke of mercy, Alfred permitted Guthrum to leave with his life after handing over hostages and accepting Christian baptism, with Guthrum agreed to. Afterward, Guthrum returned to rule in East Anglia as a nominally Christian Danish king, cementing Alfred's prestige as de facto leader of the Anglo-Saxons. In the years following Alfred's peace with Guthrum, England remained divided in two. In the west, Anglo-Saxons ruled in western Mercia and Wessex. To the east, Danes ruled in East Anglia and Northumbria in a region that came to be known as the Dane Law. While the Danes under Guthrum were nominally Christian, the Dane Law remained culturally distinct in many ways from the Anglo-Saxons, especially in legal customs. Thus, the Anglo-Saxons generally considered this region to be under foreign occupation, and it became a project of Alfred and his successors to bring it back under Anglo-Saxon control. Alfred is the only English king, for his descendants would soon start calling themselves English, bestowed with the title The Great, which would come long after his own lifetime. While he may not have been the only monarch worthy of the name, he certainly did much to earn it for himself. Following Guthrum's defeat, Alfred set about consolidating his control over Wessex, 
reorganizing the army and his kingdom's defenses. He required one-third of the nobility and peasantry to be in arms at all times to achieve a rapid response to attackers. He constructed a navy to be able to strike back against seaborne invaders. And, most famously, he created a system of fortified towns known as burras that would permit the local peasantry to seek shelter and wait for reinforcements in the event of a raid. Additionally, Alfred sought to make his kingdom a bastion for Christian scholarship and learning, recruiting foreign scholars and raising monastic standards. The best-known product of this campaign was the creation of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which in addition to providing one of the best sources of the period, did much to affirm his own heroic legacy. Alfred's reforms proved successful. In 885, Alfred defeated a band of Vikings that had invaded and then attacked Guthrum in 886 in retaliation for his support of the invaders. He took London from Guthrum and was acknowledged as king of all the Anglo-Saxons not under Danish control, effectively making him king of half of England. His defenses successfully repelled more Viking invaders in the 890s and left the kingdom of the Anglo-Saxons as the strongest force in the British Isles. His successors would go on to conquer the Danelaw and establish the Kingdom of England within a few generations. Thus, as much as the Viking invasions of England shape our ideas about who the Vikings were, the Vikings also shaped a nascent English national identity. The presence of foreign invaders prompted the Anglo-Saxons to think of themselves as one common people instead of seven warring kingdoms. This dynamic would be reinforced over the next two centuries. While the tale of Ragnar's sons had ahistorically told of Ivar the Boneless becoming king of England, Danes and the descendants of Vikings would come to rule England. In 1013, Swin, or Sven Forkbeard, king of Denmark and Norway, would defeat Ethelred the Unready and briefly become king of England too. Sven had acted partly to avenge the deaths of Danes murdered by Ethelred in, Danelaw, in the Danelaw and partly for the old Viking motivation of land and booty. Nevertheless, Sven was a Christian, and rather than raiding monks and monasteries, he recruited many of his priests from England. After his death, his son Canute and grandsons Harold and Hearth Canute would rule England as part of a short-lived North Sea Empire. The removal of the Danish Yelling dynasty under Edward the Confessor was viewed as a victory for the English over the Vikings of yore. Finally, in 1066, the new King Harold Godwinson, an Englishman, was beset by two simultaneous invasions from men who both claimed to be rightful kings of England. The first, Harald Hardrada, was king of Norway and marked a time of transition in Norse culture. Though more or less a Christian, Harald composed skaldic poetry of the heroic Viking Age and is himself remembered in the later Icelandic sagas. His own fate is explained in the saga of Ragnar's sons. While Harald was slain by Harald at Stamford Bridge, Harold was famously defeated and slain later that year at the Battle of Hastings by none other than William the Bastard, Duke of Normandy, and the successor of the famed Viking, Rollo. Only with the Norman conquest did some aspect of the Viking identity permanently weld itself into the English national identity, a concept as legendary and shrouded in mystery as the Vikings themselves. This concludes our story about the Vikings and the Anglo-Saxons for the time being. I hope that you've enjoyed it. The era is special to me as it was one of the first detailed subjects I dove into as a young boy. 
Our next episode will be a real treat and carry on the theme of ships, though its setting will be much, much different. It will likely not be released for a month or two, which will likely be my regular rate of output for the time being. Though I have been a high school teacher for the past several years, I am happy to announce that I am pursuing a PhD in history, and that means I have to pace myself in producing episodes. With your help and support, however, I expect to keep producing episodes for your and my own enjoyment. If you've enjoyed this episode of The Inglenook, be sure to like, favorite, or leave a review. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing here, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash Inglenook for only $1 a month. I'm pleased to say that I am offering detailed show notes for all patrons, which include my show scripts and recommended source materials. In time, I hope to offer more additional content on Patreon. For now, thanks for stopping by. I hope to have you around again real soon.